Welcome to Tuning In, the podcast of the Handel and Haydn Society, recorded in Boston, Massachusetts. H&H is the nation's longest-running arts organization, founded in 1815, and since the 1980s has been a leader in the performance on period instruments of music from the Renaissance through the 19th century. In each episode of our podcast, we explore music and artistry and the way both weave us through society and life in general, within the early music field and outside of it. We highlight music featured during the society's past and that planned for its future. I'm your host, Guy Fishman. Haydn Society returns for its 207th season in early October. The Society fields its period instrument orchestra for a concert combining Baroque favorites by Handel and Vivaldi with newly composed music by Jonathan Woody, all directed by our concertmaster, Aislinn Noski. Aislinn spoke to me about her thoughts on Vivaldi's Four Seasons, to which she will return as soloist, in our third and fourth episodes, and I invite our listeners to visit those and enjoy Aislinn's insights full of erudition and wit as they are. In this episode, I wanted to talk to Aislinn about various aspects of her role as director of this program. Aislinn, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Hi, Guy. It's nice to chat with you again. So our first concert back with a live audience at Symphony Hall sees our ensemble in a way that is foreign to most performances that take place there. That is to say, an ensemble directed by its concertmaster. It's a word that we all know, but we often ignore the obvious meaning of concertmaster. Could you talk a bit about the traditional role of the concertmaster? Yes, absolutely. It's a name that most people have heard, and it actually used to mean, quite literally, master of the concert. The person who directs everything happening on stage and often things happening behind the scenes as well. The current contemporary role of the concertmaster in a symphonic orchestra is quite specific, and it's a very big job. And it's pretty standardized now. Uh, a modern concertmaster will will do bowings and coordinate uh, the string section and liaise with the conductor and possibly be involved in artistic planning, play solos, a very obvious one, but it's a pretty set role. In the 18th century, there was actually many different ways that orchestras were directed. And there were many different ways that people mastered the concerts. The concertmasters did it in different ways. It was quite common for a violinist in the 18th century, one of the violinists, to be designated as concertmaster. And that would mean that they would be responsible for sometimes even organizing the rehearsals, the the space, getting the music, uh, finding it, getting everything ready, uh, and instructing the musicians what to do and directing the actual music itself while they're playing. It was also not unheard of to have directors from the keyboard 
who were concert masters. That was another way of doing things. And in Paris, actually in France, there was a little bit of an exception to this all in that they actually did use what they would call time beaters or what we would now call conductors to direct the music, especially in the opera. But it seems that in the rest of Europe, people relied on the instrumentalists in the orchestra themselves to give the directions. And the idea of having a separate person on stage whose job was to conduct only and not to play an instrument would have been quite foreign, we think, in a lot of places in Europe. And that became much more common in the 19th century, and of course, through to today, to have also a conductor on stage. So at H&H, we we take whatever approach we feel is most appropriate to whatever music we're performing. And uh, in Vivaldi's case, this is the Four Seasons, we're pretty much you know, 99% certain that there wouldn't have been a separate conductor for that. It would have been Vivaldi himself directing the musical flow from the first violin part. And uh, it's something that I, I really love about H&H is that we do have these different approaches to, to the music making. It, it adds a lot of variety to what we do. I really enjoy when I get a chance to direct the ensemble myself at H&H, but I also really enjoy when we have different guest conductors come in or when we work with our music director, Harry Christophers. You mentioned bowings for our listeners who aren't string players. You know, when you see an orchestra, you look at the violins and they either pull or push their bows and they're all going in the same direction at the same time. That's commonplace today, not so much the case necessarily in the 18th century, the sort of standardized orchestral values. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, From anecdotal evidence we have, it seems that orchestras in the 18th century, especially when the orchestra was a relatively young art form, there wasn't so much of importance put on uh, unity. And actually through the 18th century, several concertmasters around Europe became quite well known as performers for insisting on a certain unity of approach and unifying the, the way that people in the string section specifically moved their bows back and forth. It was thought to lend an air of uh, more professionalism and, and, and better execution of the music. Uh, there's a lot of writing about, for example, the orchestra in Mannheim was renowned and Mozart was incredibly impressed with them when he heard them play. And he actually said, I wish my orchestra back home in Salzburg would have this amount of discipline because we would really sound great. Mm. <laughs> and that was something, getting that discipline and, and, and directing people what to do with their bows was something that became more and more obvious left to the concertmaster, you know, yeah. to decide. Someone has to make a decision. So <laughs> Yeah. And and you intend to with this concert we'll be combining the best of our knowledge of 18th century practice and also 21st century practice, I assume, as we generally do, and seek unity in some places and maybe not so much in others. Oh yeah, absolutely. Those are totally calculated in the best way choices where we as a group naturally want to do our best and be unified and have a clear uh, artistic intention. And sometimes that artistic intention is to be a bit, you know, scattered and funny and to make a certain effect that might not be perfectly together on purpose. But but as you know, even that takes a lot of skill <laughs> to make that work. <laughs> of course. Yeah. One of my favorite anecdotes is about Corelli and his orchestra in Rome at a performance of a concerto grosso that I believe had upwards of a hundred players, which is so large, even for today's standards, we assume that early music ensembles often are smaller in number, uh, as was the case in the 18th and 19th century. But in this case, they had over 100 people. And not only were their bowings not unified, but apparently each violinist contributed his own ornaments to the performance and made a complete mess. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, I've heard that story. And it's I totally imagine it 
um, <laughs> could be true. And it would sound like absolute, so the listeners would understand that would sound like absolute chaos if everybody just started adding notes at the same time. Um, usually we, there is a tradition of, of ornamenting in 18th century music, especially in Italian music, but it's very often one person at a time. Right. And I actually, with Corelli, you know, I, I did play a project a couple of years ago of a Corelli Concerto Grosso program uh, with, I think it was a hundred students from the Conservatory of Rotterdam. So we had a hundred strings playing Corelli and, you know, it was really fun. Mm. I've never been even close to that kind of size in an early music group. And it was really fun, a little bit hard to see each other, but they put me up on this enormous podium and I looked out at the sea of instrumentalists. It was really a good time. Wow. That must've been extremely lush in terms of you know, sonic quality that, that that music is so, um, well, it's so incisive, but also very, very lush and the best of Italian style. I wish I could have heard that concert. It must have been wonderful. Yeah, yeah we should do one of those at H&H sometime. <laughs> Absolutely. Anytime. If we can fit in Symphony Hall that way, that would be great. <laughs> so, Aislinn, this concert features a work that we all love to perform with you and certainly an audience favorite. That's Vivaldi's Four Seasons, which you and I have talked about a little less than a year ago. I'd like to briefly talk about this a little bit later, but I wanted to ask you about the other two works on the program. How did you choose these pieces for this concert? Yeah, we're going to open the concert with a suite from Handel's Water Music. I wanted us to play music that felt good as well as sounded good to play. Something that we are really quite familiar with and comfortable with and that is the most celebratory thing I could think of. And I wanted to use as many people as we could under the safety protocols. So we'll be current safety protocols. We'll be being joined by our two horn players and two oboes for that suite. And it just starts with such a festive feeling. And as I imagined for months and months and months, what it would be like to come back to performing. Well, I still really don't know what it's going to feel like. I just know that it's going to feel wonderful. And I suspect it might be intensely emotional. And so I wanted to have a celebration through the music. And that's why we chose the movements we did from, from Handel's Water Music. Mm. And then the second piece in the program is something I'm so delighted we can perform because we haven't performed it. It's a world premiere in the sense of a live performance. We've only recorded it. And that's a dance suite by Jonathan Woody. And we recorded it during the pandemic shutdown. And so many of our patrons have already gotten to know it a little bit. And it's an absolutely wonderful piece. And the moment I got the score, I thought, we have to play this as soon as we can in performance. And so I'm absolutely delighted to be able to do that as well. That recording is available on our website, which our listeners can scoot a couple of pages over to, and I believe it will remain there. And there's an interview with Jonathan Woody as well, which may interest our listeners. What challenges do you face when directing an orchestral work like the handle? And does playing while directing add extra difficulty, or does it present benefits, or both? Hmm. Well, for me, I think because I've gotten used to doing it, I 
don't think of it as being more difficult anymore. It's certainly different than when I'm following someone else who's directing. The way I play changes. And if I'm the one directing the piece, I think I'm even more aware of all of my colleagues in the orchestra than I would be if I wasn't. So in other words, I'm playing my own part, but I'm really thinking about everyone else's part more than my own and trying to help them do their best, whatever that may be, whether it's giving them a little cue with my eyes or my my bow or, you know, smiling encouragingly or pointing out the fact that we should be listening to the horns more, for example. I feel as though I'm not just playing the violin, I'm playing the whole orchestra to some degree or trying to. And it's challenging, but it's just different. It's not more difficult mm. for me, not anymore. Yeah. And I, I think possibly because my attention gets taken to the rest of the orchestra when I'm directing it's maybe a little harder for me to keep my hands on my violin in the best way to keep myself sounding <laughs> as best I can, mm. uh, because I'm it's real multitasking in a sense. But I like that challenge. I, I enjoy it. I also have to say, if I may, that I haven't had the pleasure of directing H and H, but I've witnessed a lot of people do it, and a good deal of the director's work, and some would argue most of the director's work, is done in rehearsal, and. I have directed other things and I find it, you know, we're privileged to be surrounded with really excellent experts in the field. I mean, this is early music and everybody in the orchestra is an expert. And it's very, very difficult, I find, to address your colleagues, many of whom are your close friends, and essentially tell them what to do. <laughs> and I think that that's a real challenge. And one can approach it from a place of sort of supremacy and ego or a place of generosity and, and caring for the music and for each other, which is what I find you do really well. And I, I really admire how you're able to do that because I, I know it's difficult. Like when I have to turn around and ask my section, all of whom are lovely and warm and my friends to do something different, I get nervous about having to do that. Um, and so yeah. I really admire that about you and the times you direct us that, that you're able to do that very well. Thank you, Guy. That means a lot to hear. And I, I think you're great at talking to your section and, and other people too. I appreciate that about you. And I just, I'm glad to hear you say it, but I'd, I'd love to add a point to what you've just said, because it is the hardest part of, of what I do when I'm directing, absolutely, to, to try to tell a colleague what to do. And so actually, I try as hard as I can to never tell anybody what to do. It's, it's absolutely a last ditch effort for me. And, and yeah, I do it. You've seen me do it. But if I do, it's only because I've tried everything else I could think of. Because what you say about the orchestra being full and the choir being full of experts is is absolutely true. You know, the, the IQ of each person on stage was just, you know, blow me out of the water if I ever found out what it was. <laughs> and the idea that I would know more than any of them is just not something I can entertain. I don't. I, I could learn something from, and I do learn things from every single person on that stage every time we perform together. And you know, as a director, the word, it's what I call it when I'm, when I'm in charge of, of the artistic product, but I'm actually not trying to direct so much as I'm trying to encourage and I'm trying to suggest and I'm trying to invite people to play a certain way because there's such a difference to me artistically when between what something will sound like when someone's told to do it and opposed to when they want to do it and do right. it themselves. So directing for me is not about controlling the other people. It's about engaging with them and, and doing it together. And I sometimes don't find that line and it's, it's hard. I do actually have to tell people what to do sometimes, but I try to let them know that I'm, that I'm not enjoying it <laughs> <laughs> and that I'm sorry and that we can go on and 
and and just get back to collaborating as soon as we can. Um, but it's it's a, such an interesting part of the job, and it's a challenge, but it's one I take really to heart because music making when everybody's just being told what to do is fine, but music making when people are engaging together and doing it together because they want to is absolutely exhilarating. And that's what mm. I live for. Well, it sounds like you're trying to enact large scale chamber music. Oh yeah. So, yeah. yeah. That's what it feels like, which is Good. why I'm looking forward to it. Uh, speaking of bringing things out, are there specific things our listener can hope to hear that you're trying to bring out in water music what, what would you like the audience to leave with after having heard our performance well for water music i'd love them to be able to hear the wonderful horns and uh, oboes we've been missing our wind players for so long and i guess i hope that they feel the jubilation that we will feel when we're playing it because it's just a raucous toe tapper <laughs> Mm, mm. so happy to be starting with it and with the four seasons it's a different piece every time we perform it so i'd say just try to catch the one that we're gonna serve up for you on the day every you never know what's gonna happen in a four that's seasons right. concert <laughs> <laughs> that's right so in addition to these two pieces you'll be directing jonathan woody's reworking of music by charles sancho charles sancho is uh, not very well known certainly on this side of the Atlantic, but an incredibly important figure in the efforts to end the slave trade in England and among his many achievements, and there are many, uh, he was also a composer and Jonathan has taken inspiration and a stepping stone, uh, as it were, in this music and presented this beautiful suite. It's not exactly modern music and it's not exactly period music, it's a little bit of both. You've had extensive experience doing something we all imagine we're doing when we're playing with H&H, &H, and that's working with and bringing to life the wishes of a composer. Can you speak to the experience of working with a living composer? It was really wonderful to have a chance to. I hadn't done it before at H&H, &H, and I hope that we do more of it. I know we intend to, because it is very different than trying to imagine what the wishes of Vivaldi would have been uh, to just be able to pick up the phone and ask my friend Jonathan Woody <laughs> what his intentions were. Uh, it was really rewarding to have that back and forth because being able to talk to Jonathan about his piece helped me clarify what kind of vision I had for it. And it helped reveal layers of meaning in the piece that I hadn't realized were there at first. And I mean, and for his part, he, he would probably have his own things to say about it. But, you know, knowing us and getting to talk to us, I think he was able to make some adjustments because he was able to ask us certain questions. And, and it was really a wonderful back and forth. We speak so much at H&H &H about how we're breathing new life into these old works. And it was so nice to breathe life into a new work in a different way than we normally do. And I'm so happy with the result. It's really wonderful. I, I mm -hmm. think the audience is in for a treat. He, he did such a great and, and vivid job with it. Mm -hmm. He's got so many wonderful qualities uh, as a composer and a musician. I really was struck by the the tonal colors that he gets from mm. the orchestra there. So people should maybe listen for the different colors of the textures of who's playing when. It's It's very subtly done, I think. Indeed. And finally, the Vivaldi. When I play Vivaldi with you, I feel like I'm stepping into your home turf, right? I, I imagine that returning to a work that you're close to brings something of a comfort, especially after what we've experienced over the last 19 months or so, and in some ways we continue to experience. Uh, whether that's true or not, do you feel like you need to bring something new to the performance, or are there deeply held beliefs that you have about how it should be presented, or maybe it's a combination when you approach hmm. this piece? Yeah, I'd, I'd say there's a combination of, of those two different factors. And 
of of needing to say something new and also having things that I really firmly believe should should sound a certain way. That's sort of a combination, I guess. And, you know, the needing to bring something new or find something new is something I feel about every single piece of music I play, whether it's, you know, Vivaldi or, or anything. And it takes care of itself in a way because I don't solve that by, uh, you know, doing anything that distorts the music, not at all, or, or putting anything in that I believe shouldn't be there. I actually try to get the the new experience from, from realizing that each performance is absolutely unique because it's a combination of the orchestra on stage and that particular audience. And it's the energy between the two groups that really makes the performance unique. And so what I try to do is is really get into that energy and and to feel what the audience, to, to, to react to the feelings that I'm getting from the audience. The audience may not know that we feel you there. We feel the emotion in the room. And it, it actually is something we I intentionally feed off of to make the music that much more exciting or sad or, or beautiful or whatever it happens to be in the moment. And so that's one reason I think that every time I play the, I've, I've stopped counting how many times I've had the privilege of playing the four seasons because it was just, it was too many things to remember. I've done it so many times and it's never, ever, ever not been a completely fresh experience for me. And I feel so lucky that I get to approach the music that way because they're a little bit tricky, these concertos, and uh, they do take a lot of work for me to be able to execute them technically on my violin. But that work always feels completely worth it because in the end, I know, I don't know what's going to happen on stage, but I know it's going to be incredibly exciting. Mm. <laughs> and it's just the best reason to get out of bed in the morning <laughs> or in the afternoon <laughs> Shush. Yeah, yeah, that's right. true after a concert of Vivaldi yes it'll be the afternoon <laughs> well you know that's an important point that I want to add that you're performing all four and combined they're longer than any baroque or even classical I mean they're they're reaching the Beethoven violin concerto which yeah. is among the longest there yeah, is it's about of 40 any period. minutes yeah. it's about 40 minutes of of playing and you're playing all the time there's yeah. really you're, you're you're either playing the orchestral part or the solo part yeah and it's quite an achievement and that's after a first half that you've also played so there's yeah. a great bit of athleticism that goes into this that is also remarkable oh yeah <laughs> you don't make it easy for yourself that's that's for sure <laughs> Yeah, it's true. I train actually physically quite intensely for for these kind of performances. So, yeah. I bet. That's why I look like an Olympian. Ha! No, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I look like a violinist, but I do train. <laughs> you have the best hair from the Olympics, that's for sure. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, Aislinn, it's a massive understatement to say that I'm looking forward to joining you on stage shortly. And I'm sure that our colleagues and our audience feel the same way. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Guy. I can't wait. Absolutely. Me too. Aislin Noski is concertmaster of the Handel and Haydn Society. Thank you for tuning in. Please visit our webpage at handelandhaydn.org slash podcast for previous episodes and supplemental materials to this one. I hope you'll join me for the next episode.